0: Well, the great German theologian, pastor, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's a very famous quote, and it is also a profoundly powerful statement from a man who gave his own life for standing up against the Nazi regime in World War II. And yet long before that fateful day when he was hanged in a Nazi concentration camp, Bonhoeffer had learned what it meant to die to himself so that he might live for Christ, which becomes clear when you read that now famous statement in its larger context. He wrote these words, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Clearly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had come to understand exactly what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew sixteen, twenty four and 25. Furthermore, self-denial. Dying to ourselves is not merely reserved for those Christian martyrs, those famous heroes of the faith throughout history. No, it is, in fact, the call of Christ to every man and woman who would ever dare to follow him. In truth, although not a a particularly popular subject today, this concept of dying to oneself for the sake of Christ is central to the gospel itself so much so that jesus said any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple luke 14 33 you see this death that jesus requires of us in order to follow him is not merely one aspect of being a christian it is in fact the very essence of being a christian The Apostle Paul, after describing all that he'd achieved in this world before his conversion to following Christ, everything that the world would say was uh, good and virtuous and respectable and worthy of honor, right after listing all of that which he had achieved, Paul said this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, that is to say all the things that he'd obtained in this life before Christ. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Philippians 3 8 through 11 by any means possible seriously Paul I wonder how many professing Christians today, if we're being honest with ourselves, are willing, really willing, to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, by any means possible. I know this, to be able to make that claim and mean it, you have to first count everything else in your life, everything else that that you could ever possibly attain in this world, you have to count it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Him. Otherwise, as long as we pant after the trappings of this world, we will never be able to fully identify with the one whose name we bear as Christians, the, the one whose spirit lives inside of us, the one who we are supposed to represent in this world. And therein lies the true source of suffering for the follower of Christ. You see, because when we talk about suffering for Jesus and laying our lives down for him, we tend to think about the martyrs as the sort of the penultimate example of Christian suffering, right? Second only to Jesus himself. And certainly, there's much truth to that. However, when the Apostle Paul talked about suffering the loss of all things he obviously wasn't talking about his own martyrdom, right? Obviously that hadn't happened yet. No, he was talking about having to give up everything in his life which was dear to him, everything that shaped his very identity apart from Christ in order to be found in Christ, in order for his identity to be found in Jesus Christ. Paul had to give up everything else that he allowed to define him apart from Jesus. And Doing that was so incredibly difficult that Paul describes it as a death, suffering. Okay, do you understand? This is what it means to suffer as a Christian to die to yourself to take up your cross to renounce all that you have and as horribly frightening as the thought is to be martyred to actually be killed for the sake of Christ once you pass from this life to the next you're with him for eternity right Paul said to live is Christ but to die is gain but to give up all that you long for in this world apart from him and what he has called you to even your own identity in order to be found in Christ alone. That is profoundly difficult to do. And for those of you who are on that journey like me, I probably don't have to tell you why it's called suffering. To give up your own desires, your own longings, your own passions, your own will in deference to his. I have suffered the loss of many affections in my life idols, even some uh, good things that I allowed myself to be identified by instead of Jesus Christ, and yet that process continues for me. In fact, I'll just tell you, at times it can be a daily struggle. This is the suffering that Paul is describing. And I would even go a step further and challenge you today that if you never find yourself suffering the loss of anything in your life for the sake of Christ, and yet you are a believer in Christ, you may need to ask yourself whether or not you're actually following him. Because as he said, following him means sharing in his sufferings, just as Bonhoeffer did, just as Paul did, just as so many others have. Now, listen, before I get you too depressed, (laughs) there's another side to this. That is nothing short of glorious, and in fact, it is miraculous because the point of Christian suffering is not to earn our salvation, to suffer our way into heaven. If that was the case, we would all be doomed. Why? Because earning our way into heaven is utterly impossible. We cannot earn or ever deserve the gift of eternal life, which is what it is, a free gift made possible by the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross. The beauty that is found in Christian suffering is that by becoming like him, as you suffer the loss of all these other things in your life, what you're actually doing at the same time is realizing your potential in this life. You see, while you're losing all of these other things, you're simultaneously gaining infinitely more. We talked about it last week, that when God created us, He put inside every single one of us a certain capacity to reach a certain potential which happens to be full of purpose and meaning and awe and wonder and beauty. It is nothing short of supernatural what God has planned for each one of us. But look, the only way to gain all of that is to lose everything else that stands in the way of that potential. So we suffer the loss of some things, yes, but what we gain is infinitely greater and more fulfilling than anything and everything else we ever have to give up. We have a wonderful picture of that in our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph and his family in a message that is actually part two of last week's sermon where we encountered Jacob the patriarch of this great Hebrew family on his deathbed pronouncing his final blessings over his sons and so he begins with Reuben and Simeon and Levi the three oldest which we looked at last week. I'll just tell you, and if you were here, you know, if if these are considered blessings, I'd hate to see what he considered curses. Because what was declared over these three oldest sons was extremely harsh with these negative implications for their offspring for generations to come. But to be clear, that was a result of the conscious choices that these men made throughout their lives to usurp the authority to undermine the authority of their father in their lives, which is the very opposite of what we see in the story today. These men were clinging to their own desires, their own longings, their own wills, to the exclusion of the wishes of their father, and the result was catastrophic, not only for them, but again for their offspring. And and we, we covered all that last week, so we won't go over it again today. Through the rest of the chapter now, however, at least this part of the story what we find is the other side of that coin particularly with uh, judah and joseph who we will focus on primarily today although we'll look at the others so let's turn there together if you brought your bibles if not we'll put it up on the screen either way uh, to genesis chapter 49 we're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week we'll begin with verses 8 through 12 as Jacob now pronounces his blessing over Judah, and as we learn about these great men of old and the potential that was realized in their lives, as we go, let's see what we can maybe learn about realizing our potential today in our lives, okay? If you're keeping an outline, by the way, uh, you'll remember the first two points from last week. Number one, your potential can only be realized while under authority. And number two, your potential can only be realized through obedience. And so as we work through the rest of these uh, blessings today, we'll add a couple more points to those. All right, let's start with verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. So Judah now takes preeminence over the other brothers. In effect, he's receiving the inheritance normally reserved for the firstborn, which was Reuben. In uh, Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn son is said to receive uh, twice as large a share of his father's estate than any other brother. And the firstborn was also typically granted the leadership role over the rest of the family. He was given great power and authority, um, in effect, becoming the new patriarch of the family. And sure enough, we find evidence of Judah's leadership among the other tribes following the exodus throughout the the Pentateuch. In the census of Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 26, we see the tribe of Judah having the largest population of all the tribes. Uh, As well, it is the tribe of Judah that camps in front of the tent of meeting. In Numbers uh, chapters 2 and 9 and 10, it's the tribe of Judah who leads the nation of Israel in the marching of the, of the promised land. And then it is the representation of the tribe of Judah who are the first among those chosen to distribute the land allotted to the tribes in Numbers chapter 34. Uh, clearly, Judah becomes preeminent among his brothers just as Jacob says and then Jacob says to him you will be like a lion and of course in Revelation 5:5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah and yet as if all that weren't enough Jacob goes even farther he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. So Jacob uses these uh, were common symbols of royalty to describe Judah and his tribe. And of course we know that from the time of David's ascension to the throne through his dynasty all the way up through the Babylonian exile, a Judaite was always on the throne. When Jacob says this will be the case until tribute comes to him, in verse 10, if you read that in the original Hebrew, the word tribute there is literally translated as Shiloh, which was a Jewish epithet, an ancient Hebrew name for the Messiah. So Jacob says to Judah, your tribe will be a tribe of kings right up till Shiloh or until the Messiah comes. And, of course, that's exactly what happened as one final descendant of the tribe of Judah shows up some uh, 1,600 years later. That is Jesus Christ himself to set up his kingdom, which would have no end. And so, as we talked about last week, these blessings from the patriarchs were essentially irrevocable decrees and usually prophetic in nature. That's certainly the case here with these sons of Jacob as Judah is given the blessings that really should have been given to the older brothers you see Judah's potential is being fully realized while the potential of his older brothers is not and yet interestingly it's not as if Judah lived a squeaky clean life right far from it he he made his fair share of mistakes as we've studied over the last few months he made a mess of his family uh, early on. He rebelled against his father. He committed a great many sins of his own. So why is his potential being realized while the other brothers are seeing their lives fall short of what they could have been? It's because of the unwillingness of the other three older brothers to submit to their father's authority even later in life they never seemed, as far as we can tell, to learn from their mistakes or accept the lessons that their suffering was trying to teach them. You you may remember back in chapter 35, uh, Reuben had sexual relations with Bilhah, one of Jacob's wives, the the mother of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali, which was not only a horrible sexual sin, but it was a direct challenge to his father's authority over the tribe. And then back in chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, against their father's will, kill all of the men of Shechem and plunder their land in retaliation for the rape of their sister Dinah, which I mentioned last week uh, could have been justice if maybe they would just killed the offender, but instead they killed all the men of the city, which was not their decision to make. They usurped their father's authority, so they too were guilty of threatening their father's authority over the tribe by acting out of turn and directly against his will. And so uh, the potential that could have been for these three oldest sons was never realized. The tribe of Reuben never did excel. There was never a prophet, a judge, or a king that came from the tribe of Reuben. As well, Simeon was integrated into the tribe of Judah, effectively dissolving his own tribe. Levi was never given a territory of his own. He was divided up among the remaining tribes just as proclaimed over them by Jacob earlier in this chapter. So their potential was never realized and yet again, Judah had plenty of sin of his own. Plenty of rebellion against his father's authority in his own life early on. So why why is he blessed while the others are not? They all suffered at times in their lives. So why is Judah's outcome different? It's because Judah accepted the suffering that he experienced in his life for what it was, and ultimately he became a changed man because of it. While Reuben and Simeon and Levi never showed any signs of repentance or remorse or maturity, Judah allowed the suffering that he experienced in his own life to shape him into the man that God ultimately created him to be. Judah was transformed from a shockingly selfish individual to someone willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of others. It's a lesson Judah had to learn how to live sacrificially. And by the way, that lesson didn't come easy in his life. But look, your potential can only be realized through a life of sacrifice. Back in chapter 38, after colluding with his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery and then lying uh, to his father about Joseph's fate and then moving away from his family and then marrying a Canaanite woman and then denying his own daughter-in-law her marriage rights and then sleeping with her, believing she was a temple prostitute, Judah finally has a watershed moment in his life. He had lost two of his sons. He was out of fellowship with his family and his own daughter-in-law had exposed his sin and out of his suffering, Judah allows himself to be changed, to grow, to see his own potential, which is evident throughout the rest of the Joseph story, culminating in numerous instances where he actually offers his life as a sacrifice for Benjamin. He offers his life as a pledge to his father for the safety of Benjamin in chapter 43. Then he offers himself as a slave in the service of Joseph in order to save Benjamin, who's facing the same fate in chapter 44. And then he offers his life again to Joseph in place of Benjamin at the end of chapter 44. This was decidedly not the same Judah that we find at the beginning of the story because he allowed the suffering that he'd experienced throughout his life, some brought on, by the way, by his own choices and some to no fault of his own, he allowed that suffering to lead him away from a life of selfishness into a life of sacrifice. And I'm just telling you, if we want to realize our God-given potential in this life today, we must allow our suffering to teach us the very same lesson. It's actually one of the reasons God allows us to suffer, to change us for the better. Yet living sacrificially is not in our nature, is it? Each one of us is born into this world a self-centered, self-focused, selfish individual. Newborn babies are probably the most selfish people on the planet, right? Everything's about them, what they want. And unfortunately for some people, that never seems to change. So God allows us to suffer. In fact, he requires us to suffer the loss of everything in our life that might keep us from realizing our potential by sacrificially following him wherever he leads us. And yet we resist that suffering with every fiber in our being because no one enjoys suffering right it's counterintuitive to our very nature which means if our natural response to suffering is to resist it then accepting it with joy even it must become a learned response something we actually train ourselves to do. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, said about suffering in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 of his letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, that's a heck of a way to open up a letter. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds which produce steadfastness in you that you may be perfect and complete in other words you should gladly accept your suffering for what it is it is a training ground that will produce in you the faith and maturity needed so that you can realize the fullest potential that God has put into your life We have to learn to accept suffering for what it is. It's God growing us, maturing us, to lead us away from a life of selfishness into a life of sacrifice, a life that is utterly spent in the service of Christ, actually following Him. So when suffering comes, and of course it does for all of us at times, don't allow it to debilitate you. To shut you down to pull you away from Christ and his people and his purposes in your life that's what Reuben and Simeon and Levi did and as a result they never became all that they could have become now let your trials in life teach you to live sacrificially okay when trials come in your relationships love more not less when, when financial trials come, give more, not less. When trials come in your service to God and His people serve more, not less. When you suffer what seems to be the loss of a dream, maybe that God has given you, look, dream bigger, dream more, not less. Allow your suffering to lead you into a life of sacrifice, and I promise you, you will see God begin to realize potential in your life that you probably didn't even know was there. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his brother shall be at Sidon. Now, he skips over the natural birth order here so as to stay with the uh, sons of Leah. Jacob blesses Zebulun, whose tribe was noted for its faithfulness to King David in supplying the largest number of soldiers for David's army, more than any other uh, tribe. That's documented in 1 Chronicles uh, 12.33. And just as Jacob says he will be a haven for ships, Zebulun's tribe ended up occupying the portion of land between the Mediterranean, Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Let's continue, verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Issachar was the third largest tribe of Israel, according to um, the census in numbers 26, so they had, <coughs> excuse me, great strength in numbers. However, because of their size, they were often targeted by uh, foreign armies who would press them into forced labor or slavery. Okay? Verses 16 through 18. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So Jacob says that Dan will judge his people, right? And Dan in the Hebrew, by the way, literally means judge. And interestingly, uh, back in chapter 30, verse 6, when he was born to Billah, who was a woman who was given to Jacob as a substitute wife by Rachel, when Dan is born Bilhah, to Bilha, Rachel makes this statement. She says, God has judged me. All right, so it just underscores the significance of names in, in ancient Hebraic culture, which we've talked about before. And then Jacob goes on to compare Dan uh, to a serpent or a viper by the path, which is meant to convey the image of the tribe of Dan as being small, but very potent, very effective. Which was certainly fulfilled through the life of Samson who came from the tribe of Dan. And of course, uh, you know, you can read all about Samson in the book of Judges, but it is the Targums. Uh, Those are a collection of ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible from the first century AD. And more specifically, the Targum Neophyte. It's the largest of all of the, the, the Targums on the Torah. And that draws a direct link between the viper by the path described by Jacob and the exploits of Samson in the book of Judges as the fulfillment of uh, Jacob's pronouncement over Dan here. So just very interesting stuff. Let's keep going. Uh, Verses 19 through 21. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Gee, thanks, Dad. <laughs> you got all these, I'm an awesome soldier. You're going to have this huge tribe. And then, yeah, Naphtali, he's a beautiful doe that bears beautiful fawns. It just seems like, I don't know. Anyway, in the, <clears throat> a little disappointing. In the days of Jeremiah, uh, there were foreign armies who opposed Gad, but Gad also provided some of the finest fighters of, in all of Israel against their enemies. I love First Chronicles 12:14 says, These Gadites were officers of the army. The least was a match for a hundred men and the greatest for a thousand. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Asher, the second son of Zilpah, settled in a lush, fertile strip of land that ran uh, north from the Carmel Range alongside uh, the Canaanites and Phoenicians, which meant the tribe of Asher was able to produce, because of the fine soil, these royal delicacies, and they even supplied the foreign courts with their produce, which also helped Asher to become one of the most affluent tribes of Israel and then Naphtali our friendly little doe the second son of Bilha uh, settled west of the upper Jordan valley beside Lake Hula uh, which was an area again uh, full of natural resource sources great soil for planting and growing and it didn't have a defined uh, northern border which meant they could roam free it also meant they flourished much like Asher as they were a wealthy tribe living on a sprawling tract of uh, really what was prime real estate. So let's continue now as the story turns to Joseph uh, to the other area of focus for Jacob next to Judah. Let's read verses 22 through 27. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet as his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath blessings of the breast and of the womb the blessings of your father are mighty and beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers then he finishes with benjamin as a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and that evening, uh, dividing the spoil. So Jacob completes the blessing over his sons by pointing out the fierceness of the tribe of Benjamin, which certainly they became known for. You can read all about that throughout uh, Judges and uh, First Samuel. But just before finishing these pronouncements over his sons, he addresses Joseph. And Jacob's blessing over Joseph is really as much an accounting of Joseph's life up to this point as it is a future blessing over his offspring. He talks about the fruitfulness of Joseph. And of course, throughout this story, We've witnessed uh, the amazing fruitfulness of Joseph's life. He's been a profound blessing in the lives of nearly everyone he's encountered for decades now. And besides which, he single handedly developed a plan to save the entire nation of Egypt and the surrounding nations from a famine that would have otherwise uh, wiped them out. And then Jacob says the archers bitterly attacked him shot at him and harassed him severely yet his bow remained unmoved his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob it's such a a beautiful picture of God working in Joseph's life through his deepest suffering you see when Joseph was attacked by his own brothers, when he was sold into slavery by strangers, when he was accused by Potiphar's wife, when he was forgotten by the cupbearer and left in prison for a crime he never committed. Through every trial... Every difficulty when Joseph was emptied of all his possessions, stripped of his dignity, cast away like a piece of garbage and forgotten by everyone he loved and devoted his life to serving through all of it. God was there. Not only was he there, but he was actively working working on Joseph's behalf, shaping him and making him into the man that God had created him to be so that Joseph could realize his fullest potential in this life, which was God's plan for him, and that is exactly what happened. God used Joseph's suffering to turn a 17-year-old, entirely selfish, self-centered, spoiled brat into one of the greatest leaders of human history who dedicated himself to a life of self sacrifice and genuine humility. To be sure, it was a hard lesson for Joseph to learn and yet necessary for his potential to be realized in his life. And the same same is true for us today. Your potential can only be realized through genuine humility. With every opportunity to have an adulterous affair with potiphar's wife joseph chose instead to humbly honor potiphar even though it meant joseph going to prison for doing nothing wrong when pharaoh tried to give joseph credit numerous times for interpreting his dreams joseph repeatedly explained to pharaoh that it was god's doing he chose to take no credit for himself And then after becoming the vizier, the second in command of all of Egypt with no one to answer to except Pharaoh himself, Joseph chose to continue to humble himself and honor and obey his father right up until his death because Joseph's suffering taught him humility. And the lesson was so deeply embedded within him that long after his days of suffering were over and he'd risen to the very pinnacle of, of worldly power and success, Joseph chose to remain genuinely humble before God and others. You see, our suffering, the trials that we endure in this life, they are never pointless as far as God is concerned. We may not see or understand the reason for them while we're experiencing those hard times, but I'm telling you, God does because he's always shaping He's always working in our lives on our behalf through those trials, making us into the men and women that he created us to be, which means we have a choice to make when we experience suffering. We can isolate ourselves from God and the people he's placed in our lives and focus on ourselves, which really is nothing more than a form of pride or we can humbly learn to rely on him and those he has placed in our lives through those most difficult times to shape us, to grow us, and mature us to our fullest potential. If you study the lives of people throughout history who've gone on to achieve great things for Christ, if you look back through their lives, you will always find some kind of suffering, a death, a dying to themselves first before they achieved anything great. And the common denominator among them is how they responded to the suffering they faced. People who achieve great things for Christ learn through their trials to sacrificially deny themselves, to walk humbly before God and others. Reuben and Simeon and Levi never learned to do that, but Judah did and Joseph did. And just look at the difference in the results. In verse 4, Jacob describes Reuben and his future as unstable as water. You shall have no preeminence. In other words, even though you're the firstborn with so much potential, because you chose to serve yourself and your own ego over sacrifice and humility, you will go on to achieve nothing noteworthy. Your potential will not be realized. And yet to Joseph, (laughs) who chose a life of sacrifice and humility... Jacob says, the God of your father will help you. The Almighty will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Wow! Wow! What a difference. By the way, by the way, Reuben and Simeon and Levi were still sons of Jacob, right? They still received an inheritance. You understand we're not even talking about heaven and hell here. We're not talking about the difference between believers and unbelievers. No, the message here is that among believers there are those who will never reach their fullest potential in this life because they consistently choose to serve themselves instead of others or their pride over humility. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but it does mean you're shortchanging yourself and your family by not becoming all that God created you to be. Wouldn't you rather have Joseph's blessing over Reuben's I sure would. But if we're going to live up to the fullest capacity that God has put inside of us, that means we will have to live the way Jesus told us we had to live, which is very clearly a life of sacrifice and humility. But living sacrificially, living a life of self-denial taking up your cross and humbly renouncing every other thing in your life that could ever possibly stand in the way of utterly spending yourself in the lifelong service of Christ. That isn't a very popular message today, first of all, but it is the message of Christ and it is central to the gospel itself. And the most relevant to this message for us today is is that it's absolutely necessary for you to realize the potential that he's placed inside of you from even before you are born into this world. Okay, we'll, we'll never reach our potential any other way. We must learn to live sacrificially and humbly before God and before each other. But, but listen, here's the really good news. When you learn to live that way, sacrificially, humbly, then when trials and suffering do come, They don't have the same paralyzing effect on you as they did back when you were living for yourself. In fact, you'll be able to count it as joy when those tough times come. This is what James learned. Because you'll be able to recognize the perfection, the completeness, the potential that Christ is producing in your life through those very trials. And look, the the more we sacrifice, the more we give away the more we forgive, the more we love, the more we bless others, the more he blesses us back. Jesus said, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. The more we give, the more he gives back. The more we give sacrificially, the more we become who he created us to become. And look, the more we live humbly before him and others, the more he elevates us. Later on in James' letter, in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And yet everything in our nature screams, exalt yourself. Look out for number one. Focus on me. Get everything you can for yourself and hold on to it. Don't let anyone else take it from you. And don't let anyone else disrespect you. That's our nature. Yet at the same time, the Spirit of Christ within us says, look out for your brothers and sisters first. Give out of your need Count others more significant than yourselves. Bless those who curse you. Can you see how antithetical our sinful nature is with the spirit of Christ? The two are decidedly at war within us, which is precisely why following Jesus requires us to die to ourselves, to our sinful nature, because the two are incompatible. Mutually exclusive. The Apostle Paul said, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5.17. He wrote that to a bunch of believers. You see, Christians, we still have the capacity to sin, right? But when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we're also given the capacity to resist sin. Something the unbeliever does not have. And so the battle rages on within us. It's why there must be a death to our sinful nature. And yet Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. In other words, die to himself daily and follow me. Every single day. We have to choose. To deny ourselves and follow Jesus and yet as difficult as that may be it is in fact the call of Christ to every man and woman who would ever dare to follow him to suffer the loss of all things that we may gain Christ that is the very essence of what it means to follow him and that reward is infinitely greater than the loss Okay, listen, guys. God has so much in store for you. You've no idea all that he has in store for your life. In fact, he has magnificent plans for you. But we have to die to everything else in our lives that can keep us from realizing those plans. So listen, if you never find yourself suffering the loss of anything in your life for the sake of Christ, and yet you're a believer in Christ, ask yourself with all honesty, am I actually following him in my life? Because you'll have to. If you want to become the person that he has created you to be, you will have to to realize your fullest potential let's pray